listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. It is just after the Thanksgiving holiday here in the United States. And for my fellow Americans, I hope you had a reasonably good Thanksgiving. I know that doesn't sound inspiring reasonably good, but in these strange days, this is a hard holiday for a lot of people. Christmas will be a hard holiday. They're all hard. They're all hard for a lot of people already, but in this year, it's so weird. And yet, I think in some ways, the more stuff gets stripped away, uh, the more comforts and bells and whistles are not available to us, the more hopefully some of us are drilling down and finding the ability to be thankful and grateful and aware of the basics, just the ability to see a piece of fabric in front of you and to, to, to touch it. To, to hear a sound of a bird or a person outside your window, to taste anything. Just, I mean, just the pure sensory experience of being a human being, let alone, let alone the ability to remember something another time. Remember a time when things were different than they are right now, to draw that memory back and that awareness back and sense it again, or, or, or to imagine a future and, and, and project into it possibilities. I mean, these are, I don't know if they're uniquely human. There may be other beings that are experiencing some manner of these things, either here on this earth or elsewhere in the universe. I don't know, but it is really special to be able to do that stuff. I mean, I was just, I was, I watched a few movies over the weekend and just seeing representations of other times and places, but you know, crowds of people hugging and kissing and being in stadiums and cheering for sports games. And I know that stuff isn't available to most of us right now, but just the memory of it and the possibility of it coming back and the experience of having had it ever just think we got to remember that we are still light years ahead of being carbonite or quartz or, 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 or a black hole in the middle of the universe. There are all sorts of things out there that are not aware, as far as we know, of the stuff that we just take for granted until it gets taken away. And so, yeah, I, I hope you had a reasonable Thanksgiving, and I hope that that perhaps you're you are sort of. They say that when somebody loses one sense, the other senses become sharpened, and I'm hoping that in some ways, as we lose some pleasures, other pleasures are becoming more sharpened. I'm reading this book right now. It's a really remarkable book. Um, it's called The Club: Johnson, Boswell, and the Friends Who Shaped an Age written by a guy named Leo uh, Damrosh. And uh, it's about Samuel Johnson, who was like the greatest writer in the 18th century. And 
Thomas Boswell, who ended up being his great friend, very unlikely friendship, cross generations and stuff, and, and also his biographer who brought him to life in a way that made him kind of a literary giant even after he died. And mainly it's about how <laughs> all these guys struggled with depression and, uh, and melancholy. And, and, and at one point, one of Johnson's friends, a painter, uh, proposed that since he was always cheered up by conversation, they should get together once a week in a, in a pub and talk about big ideas together. And so they did. And it ended up being this thing they all called the club. And you couldn't get in unless everybody else in the group was wanting you to join. Um, and so it was kind of an exclusive club, but it involved, it, you know, it ended up in this one little London pub, like kind of the best minds of England. Um, and just reading about the nature of their friendships and I mean, these were flawed, flawed people. I mean, Boswell in particular, what a scum of the earth guy in terms of his treatment of women. And uh, Sam Johnson, like, you know, kind of really lousy son to his mother. Um, I mean, these were really flawed people, but they were also people who loved life and strove to contribute something to the conversation, contribute something to the beauty of the, uh, of, of, of humanity. And as I was reading and I was just thinking like, wow, what, a, what a strange thing it is that I can read this book written by Leo about Boswell writing about Johnson, who was writing about life in the 18th century. Just what a strange way in which our language and our printing presses and our technologies and even our economy that somebody would pay somebody to put a book like this together or sell it or market it just just to have access to that to have access to the 18th century that way um you know i'm looking at a towel sitting on the table that i'm doing this podcast near and just when I think about the machinery that went into that towel, making that towel, and the, the agriculture about creating the cotton and the shipping and, and all the different kinds of human expertise, the sales, the, 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 the stocking, the logistics, the car I used to go get the towel, the running water that runs into my house that is why I require the towel. Towel. I mean, there's just so much when you look at a towel. There's so much when you look at anything. And so I think half of the battle when it comes to dealing with loss is having enough perspective to see beneath the loss into what still remains and, and to see through the loss to what it what you still have of the thing that is gone. I mean, I was really fortunate this this time. Um, you know, obviously, I've got my my kids around the corner and my granddaughter there, and and I'm so aware that next year she'll be different than this year. At that age, they change so much, and so like you 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 better enjoy this. She'll be gone, and yet she'll 
be different, and yet you'll still remember what she was when she was two, and that's all echoes and, and projections. And so much of being grateful is paying attention and looking a little more deeply. I got a big, long lecture from one of my kids over the Thanksgiving holiday about my dismissive tendencies towards mindfulness and meditation and just like when I was a Christian towards prayer that that I'm just I'm a little bit put off by kind of open openly mystical or 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 fuzzy forms of spirituality you know it's not as though I'm not a big proponent of spirituality and secular spirituality and respecting other people's spiritualities and so in theory I'm cool with it but my family was pointing out that in practice, when people bring it up, I tend to roll my eyes. And I gotta, I, you know, I, I fought, I was defensive, I got angry. I didn't like being challenged that way. Um, but in the end, I realized that in some ways I am about spirituality the way some of my friends are about towels. And that is, we're not looking carefully enough that there's there's something there and I need to become a little bit more open. I'm probably not a little bit. I probably need to become a lot more open to being willing to, to try ways of seeing and perceiving and experiencing life around me that are different than the ones I'm most comfortable with. Because Lord knows, I love waxing eloquent about a towel. But uh, but there are other things that I need to I need to work on, and maybe you need to work on the towel thing. I don't know. That's why I'm talking about it. I'm hoping this is helpful. I don't know. What I do know is that just because we have a president elect, and just because there's going to be a transition of power, just because things are going to be different doesn't mean that the the deep division that has marked our 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 world and our experience in this country for the last 4 years it's not going anywhere i mean 70 million people voted one way and 70 some million people voted another way diametrically opposed there's a lot of division out there and so the value of this conversation we're trying to promote about how to talk to people who think and believe and feel differently than you do. I, I think it's I think it's got legs, baby. I think it's got legs. And so um, in the time between now and the new year, um, which is so busy for everyone, what what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pull up a couple of conversations that I that we had in the past that probably most of you that are new to the show have never heard that I think would be really worthwhile for you to listen to because they're really relevant to, to this moment. I, and what brought them to mind is I was in a conversation with a friend of mine, Patrick. And Patrick and I were talking about a project that he's on, that he wanted to enlist me on, talking about how do you, how do you get people who don't share your values to consider your values? as a possibility. Either people that don't really have a very finely tuned or finely defined value system or people that have one that's really different than yours. How do you engage people in conversation? If you think 
your values, if you think your approach to life might be helpful to them. And it kind of took me back to my Christian days when we were planning out evangelism and how do you, you know, how do you think of five people that you want to have a conversation with and how would you engage those people in conversation and how do you keep them from being defensive and how do you articulate your stuff in a way that's winsome? And, uh, and in the conversation, Patrick mentioned um, the podcast I did with Anthony Magnabosco. And a part of me thought, well, yeah, Patrick, but like Anthony Magnabosco, he has meaningful dialogues about truth and epistemology uh, with strangers. And those conversations rest on sort of the human tendency to be polite to somebody you don't know very well. I'm not sure that street epistemology would work nearly as well if I was doing it with my Uncle Joe over Thanksgiving. And so we were talking about, yeah, Anthony Magnum Mosco is like an expert at one kind of conversation with people who think differently. And that's his street epistemology. And I thought, you know, I need to revisit that conversation. I probably need to get Anthony back on the back back on for a second conversation. But but for starters, I, I revisited that conversation. And there's so it, it's so interesting for me to talk to Anthony because we agree on so much and we vehemently disagree on so much. And so I want to, if, if you haven't heard this conversation, I think it will really lend you some perspective to two different ways of thinking about talking to people who really not only see the world differently, not only interpret the facts differently, but but kind of get their knowledge in a different way. Um, and, and then, so th th that's what I'm going to share with you that conversation right now, my conversation with Anthony. And then next week, I'm going to share with you a different conversation with another friend, David Fleischer, um, and, uh, who, who does deep canvassing. And again, like Anthony's talking to strangers on the street. David Fleischer's the master of talking to people when he knocks on their door. And then I'm going to bring it around in the end with a, a conversation about how you talk to somebody like Patrick and I are talking about. How do you talk to five or six people, you know, one at a time who are in your life, who you want to share your perspective with, you want to tell your story to, and you want to, well, I don't know if you want to hear their story, but if you want to tell them yours, you're going to have to listen to theirs. And that's going to be the key to that. And we'll talk about that later on down the line. For now, for now, I I think you're going to find, if you don't know Anthony, I think you're going to find him to be a fascinating person um, because he comes at, he comes at people, literally comes at people in a way that's unlike anyone I, I had known before I knew Anthony. So here's me and Anthony Magnum Bosco, the lead dog of the street epistemology movement, um, chopping it up on Humanize Me. I'll see you on the other side. Good to talk to you. Yeah, we're like two bald guys with goatees who really like people. <laughs> we have something in common. What's not to love about us, right? I know. It's, it's all good. I've seen your name off and on over the years, and I figured one day we're going to meet. And, and, and this is the day. This Today's the, the day. day. I thought I was going to be in person in San Antonio at one point, but I was out of town when you, uh, you came through and gave a talk here, I think. Oh, you know, do you know those people? I do, yeah. I was just watching one of these videos, uh, the, the video of your talk to Atheist United, like where you show some videos and then you explain how the method works in between. Yeah. 
And I was thinking like, if you showed one of those seven minute videos to these kids, they would all see themselves in that kid. Mm -hmm. So, so I met your boy up there in Columbus. (laughs) Yeah. And what a likable guy. He is. Yeah. Dan, he's a great (laughs) guy. And Dan comes kind of out of the world that I come out of. Um, Is that the world that you come out of? Do you come out of evangelical Christianity at any point? I wouldn't say evangelical. When I hear that word, I kind of think strict by the book belief. Fundamentalism maybe even comes to mind. I mean, I, I was raised in a religious household, Catholic. We went to church every week. Uh, we celebrated all the special masses that you needed to celebrate, and we wouldn't eat meat on Fridays, I think even including fish, if I'm not mistaken, at one point uh, during... I think it was Lent, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. So I was raised in a in a religious household, but I was always this. I was the skeptical one in my family. I was the one that was questioning. Um, I was the one that was pretending to be sick because I didn't want to go to church. I just I didn't see the value in it. Uh, so I what did what did you see the value in when you were a kid? Like what what was what was your thing? Were you a sports guy? Were you a ooh a, a science guy? What were you doing? Hmm. Well, that was right around the age where it was feasible to get a home computer. I had a TI-99-4A computer in my house. I was learning how to code. I was playing video games. I was also involved in sports and that type of thing. I, I guess if you were to ask me what was valuable to me, I would say probably the friendships that I had. And they were not dependent on us believing in the same deity. That It was just independent of that. It was things that we just had in common, wanting to have fun, wanting to do good things. Uh, religion for myself personally was not that big of an issue. And I was kind of always perplexed why it was for so many other people around me. Were you in Texas at the time? No, no, no. I lived, I grew up in the Midwest in the Chicago area, highly Italian, highly Catholic area. Was there anything extraordinary about your, your upbringing or do you feel like, like, no, I had like a kind of a basic upbringing. I mean, I I just had really good loving parents. I was the oldest of, of, of four and uh, my kids looked up to me. I, I did all sorts of odd jobs around the neighborhood. I, I would cut grass. I would shovel snow in the wintertime. Are you tight with your siblings? Not not these days. Not really anymore. No. I, I think no. my non-belief is kind of, even though I was a skeptic back then, I never really identified as an atheist until, I don't know, probably within the last 12 years maybe. And then I think that scared them. I was, I was well, <laughs> I think I, I brought a lot of that on myself to be quite honest. Because of the way you came out to them? Yeah. Well, it wasn't so much the way that I came out to them. It was the way that I interacted with them on their beliefs that I didn't think were true. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> like, I, I was really in their face. I was pointing out facts, uh, ridiculing them. Kind of everything that we try not to do when we're using street epistemology. Yeah. You know what? I, I meet so many people who when I'll give a talk about how to come out to your family, you know, or, or how to interact with people of belief will come up to me and go like, man, where were you? Where were you when I needed you when I first came out? Because like they burn all their bridges and they, or they, they make, they do all their damage in the first year when they're angry and they feel like they, they've just been, you know, like they feel like they have all of life's answers now and they're pissed at having been deceived and, they just go hard yeah. and they're like, man, if I could just do those first 
six or eight months over again, I think my life would be a lot better now. Mm. And I don't know if you've, if you've had that experience yourself where you're like, oh, where you, you meet people and they're like, where were you teaching me how to be like gentle and, and thoughtful and to be in partnership with the person I'm in conversation with? Hmm. <laughs> I know? never really thought of it that way. I honestly never really regretted not having role models to show me a better way. Um, because I ended up learning from it. And I suppose because I, I made the journey and I, I found myself on the other side and I could look back and see, I didn't hold anyone responsible or really have any regrets for people not stepping up to guide me. However, as I think about it now, because you're, you're making me think about it, it probably would have been a pretty nice thing to have. Uh, it's funny too, because I get a lot of feedback from people who watch the interactions where we're using street epistemology, or I'll, I'll, I'll abbreviate it SE, and they thank me for showing them a different way of engaging with people. So it, it honestly would have been better, I think, if I had engaged with them using a different method, but I didn't feel upset that there wasn't anyone to show me how to do it back then. No, and, 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 and a lot of times, like people will tell me later on down the road, they'll say like, I thought I was doing the best thing I could do. Like I was like I was trying to save my you know brothers or sisters or whatever from you know a harmful belief that was you know and and so like they felt really good about what they were doing at the time. Mm -hmm. But then they like they they get farther down the road and they look back and they go like, "Oh my gosh, like I was they were I was backfiring affecting them." Like, like the more I attacked them, the more they doubled down. And like, I actually was harming them. I, I wasn't helping them. Like I drove them deeper into the, into the, into whatever they were into. Right. But um, it's, it's so counterintuitive. I think at the time you, you tend to think, oh, I found my way out. I don't believe it anymore. Yes. I, I want to help these folks stop believing this stuff too, because it's probably not true. And I can see the harm now that I'm outside looking in, I can see the harm that these beliefs are causing. So we tend to think, yeah. oh, I just need to give them evidence. I just need to provide them with some facts and then they'll change their mind. And what we seem to be finding is that that approach isn't the best way, especially when you're dealing with a one-on-one -on -one situation like that. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's funny because it's a little ironic to me because you know the people that get let out of it is, as Christians, at least if they were in the evangelical movement that I was in, and, and, and that didn't mean like these hardcore fundamentalists, but it meant like people that felt like it was their duty to win people to Jesus um, and to go out there and share the good news. They should have learned in Christianity that you don't attack somebody's beliefs directly, you know, that that's not an effective method mm. because, I mean, they taught you that in evangelism training. You know, they, they, they like in reverse. And so it's weird to me sometimes, but I, I think there is this just this for many people, it's almost like a visceral rage, um, not at the other person, but at the idea itself and at what it might be doing to them. And there's just a sense of like, we got to get you out of that burning house right now. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of how I looked at it. Uh, I, I reflected on these beliefs that I was taught to be true by people that I loved and trusted. And when you come to realize that these things are probably not true, you tend to lash out at those that taught it to you or that you see it being taught to. And I think yeah. that we do that because we, <laughs> we're mad at ourselves for having swallowed it. We're mad at ourselves for having believed it. 
And it's a, it's a lot easier to be mad at somebody else than to be mad at yourself, I think. And that might explain why we, why we lash out at other people. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's true that we project on like, like it is easier to go like you idiot. Like, cause what you're really thinking is what was wrong with me? Right. Um, exactly. Why did I fall for this? It's so simple now that I look at it. Why are they falling yeah. for it? And then we lash I out at that, them and I think we're lashing out at our, at our past selves. I think there's a lot of that. I, I, I know, I know there's a lot of that because I've excavated it with, a, with with friends, and they've sort of gone like, "Yeah, that's what it's really about for me." And when they when they sort of forgive themselves a little bit, um, then they're 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 easier on other people. Mm-hmm. But you know, the other thing is, I think there's just pure visceral fear, where where you see somebody playing with a knife, and you know, if you scream, you know, see a little child playing with a knife and if you scream at them, put that knife down, they're just as likely to like flinch and stab themselves with it. And so what you're really better off doing is walking up to them going like, hey, what do you got there? Can I look at it? <laughs> I you love know, the metaphor. But, That's great. But yeah, but but you're because you love that kid. Sometimes you do the thing that is absolutely not in their best interest. Um and so it's it is counterintuitive, and you have to teach yourself like, listen, do not go, do not grab the knife. You know, yeah. I think let's talk about talk about it. Yeah, that, I love that metaphor, and it, it reminds me of one of the reasons why I like to partake in engaging with people using the Socratic approach of of SE, and it's uh, it's because we care about people. That's really generally where this is coming from. We want to help them. We want to help them realize that they're holding a dangerous knife without just rushing them. <laughs> we would like to have them just reflect on the process that they use to get to their belief. I think it comes from a place of empathy. See, that was my thing when I was, when I was up at the Secular Student Alliance thing and I met Dan because he was giving a presentation, but he had a whole bunch of SE you know, team members around him. You know, like mm. they, they had the shirts and they were into it. And, uh, and as I listened to them, I thought like, you know, the danger here is that sometimes when you feel like you've got an angle on the truth, um, whether it's AA or, you know, how to make money in real estate with no money down or whatever, when you feel like you've got this thing, there's a tendency for it to become about like winning people over or, you know, kind of it can become about the thing and about the spreading of truth mm. rather than about the loving of people. Mm. And so mm-hmm. as Dan and I were talking, I was like, dude, when you're up front, like you want to make it really clear that the reason you're wanting to enter into these conversations is not to build the movement or to save the world. It's because you care about the other person that you're talking to. Very well put. I'm encountering so many people who are uncertain that I'm justified in uh, claiming the higher ground or something like that. Like, I think there's a, I think there's a risk to that. Although when I look at the practitioners of street epistemology, we seem to be very conscious of the idea that we ourselves could very well be holding views that don't line with reality. And we want people to learn this method. This isn't just about tearing down beliefs or showing people that they've, they've built their belief on a shaky foundation and I'm superior to you. That's not at all. That last piece isn't isn't a part of it at all, at least from my perspective. But it's about giving people a chance to think about their beliefs and maybe change their mind and teach them these tools 
so that they can continue using them on their own beliefs and other people's beliefs. This isn't just for atheists to tear down a Christian or something like that. We want everyone to learn this method, the Christians included, Muslims included, no matter what your religious affiliation. Uh, this is a tool set that we think everybody should learn and everybody should be asking others and themselves these types of questions. Well, and that's that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about because I think that a lot of times in a lot of movements, what the leader embodies and why they're in it is so crystal clear to them that they don't necessarily feel the need to make it explicit at every time. Like, duh, can't you, you know, like everybody uh -huh. knows this. And I don't think, I, I think you need to be more explicit about mm. your, your care for the other person. And like about, you know, what's funny is like, I use the word love a lot and people go like, oh, that's because you come from that, you know, Christian background. Like, you know, you, like you, you got a hangover. I'm like, no, no, no. I got a lot of science. Um, I got a lot of evidence. I got a lot of reason behind my commitment to loving relationships as my ultimate value. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's like the, the probably the, the surest way for me to make the most of my brief moment of existence. Mm. But, but I think like for you, I think it's really important that you make explicit the fact that as human beings, it makes sense for us to be concerned about other members of our tribe and that we're all better off when any one of us is better off. You know, when we, when we strengthen another person, it strengthens the tribe, it makes the world a safer place and all these good things. And so in a sense to sort of say like, this is a way of caring for other people. This is a way of connecting with other people. This is a way of making another person's life better. And I, I love the framing of that, that suggested framing. I think that that's, that's key. Uh, when we give talks on SE, there tends to be a good five or six things, misconceptions that we, that we want to address right away. This isn't just for atheists. You don't have to initiate talks. It doesn't have to be uh, a religious topic even. There's a good, like I said, four or five things that we want to clear out right away uh, because if you don't, people get become confused, I think, and less open to what you're saying. But I think you're right. I think that it, that is an important part that would have to be also addressed is this idea of why we're why are we motivated to do this? What's what is really driving our actions? Yeah, and and you know the truth of the matter is is that since I've sort of been an outwardly like a, a known humanist guy. The people that are drawn to me, the people that like listen to my podcast are, I don't know if they're predominantly, but there's a huge chunk of them that are post-Christians and what, the, and they loved being Christian. They loved the fellowship. They loved the music. They loved going on missions trips and helping people. They loved being part of a community that was proactively seeking to be, become better people. And, and when they lost that narrative, it was incredibly painful for them because they were like, this is a lifestyle that works for me. And when, and, and when they encounter me, they go like, ooh, listen to that guy's voice. Like, look at the way, he, look at the meetings he's running. Like, that looks like what I came from. And I think that those people would be among the world's best street epistemologists because what makes I watch, you know, when I've watched your your tapes and then I've watched some of other people's tapes, and like 
you're better at it than a lot of people. And part of that is because, you know, you've got your 10,000 hours in, <laughs> but, but part of that is because you exude warmth mm. in, in a way that I recognize. Mm. And a lot of times the people, like people like me who exuded warmth that way, a lot of times we found our way into church, not because the belief system made so much sense to us, because we, we wanted a place to exercise our warmth gifts. Mm. And I think that a lot of those people, when they get run out of the church because they can't believe the stuff anymore, they want to they want to exercise their warmth gifts. And those warmth gifts would make them great street epistemologists, but they're not going to be drawn to it if they think it's about destroying Christians' faith. Because mm -hmm. like half their friends are still Christians, but they will be drawn to it if they think it's about loving other people. Well, there's a lot there. And- uh, first, thanks for the compliment. Um, I, I do think one of the ways to get really good at SE is to ask yourself, what is motivating you to have these conversations in the first place? Am I doing yeah. this to feel good and superior? Or do I genuinely want to help somebody think about the process they use to get to their beliefs? Uh, mine is the latter. Another thing I think is it's really important to set aside your ego when you have these talks. This isn't about winning. This isn't about destroying people. I really do think it's about helping people, but being humble enough to recognize that this person who I talk to who really thinks Jesus is real might actually have used a reliable process to get there. I need to be open to that. So those, I think, are probably prerequisites if you want to be really good at this. Uh, and then maybe just to kind of close it out, I guess, viewing the people that I'm talking to as human beings and not somebody to conquer uh, is so important. It is so important. Um, I never felt comfortable arguing with people and debating with folks. I did it. I have videos that you can watch on my channel where I'm arguing with people and debating with them. I was never comfortable doing it. And I think it just, this, this is a technique that worked better for me as a person. Now, what I think is really interesting is that people then watch these cordial exchanges where people are deeply reflecting on their beliefs, maybe even lowering their confidence, uh, most often with a total stranger here. And they think, oh my gosh, there's, there's a different way than what I've been seeing atheists converse with believers. And they get very excited about it because I think they might see that this, this approach might resonate with their personality. The, mm -hmm. the, the, the other thing is like, I had this other thought that's connected to this. Yeah. Because like when you said it's not about winning, I'm like, well, maybe, I guess it all defines, you know, I, I have a friend who always says, what's a win for you in this situation? Sort of like, what are you going for here? Like, mm. how, do, how do you measure success? And, and I sort of think like some of those SE conversations that I've seen, you measure success by whether the person shakes your hand at the end and says, this was a good talk. You really got me thinking. Like, it's not a win necessarily. Like, we, we, deconverted a Christian or we de you know, but like we got somebody thinking like that's a win. I think that's right. Like if somebody ended a conversation with me and they abandoned a belief because of a bad reason, I would feel terrible. I wouldn't view that as a win, even though they may have come around to my point of view or something. Uh, no, ending it on a good term is, is one of the, one of the success factors I think that's there them being encouraged and 
and possibly remembering the conversation for years down the road. If a conversation resonates with them, I would say that that's a win. If they walk away thinking, I need to find out some more information about this. I don't know if I could be so sure. Leaving them with a pebble that they can address later, I would say is a win. If they were upset with me- And if I just think in in terms of the LGBT movement that's happened over the last 30 years, having them walk away from a conversation with an openly secular person and going like, that person was really nice and respectful and I enjoyed (laughs) talking to them, that's a win. Well, I think that that actually came up in my conversation with Dan. I think he uh, he identified it as an atheist at one point, and then he wasn't. And then we kind of we started debating, not debating, we started discussing definitions. But afterwards, I think he said that it was one of the rare times where he had a pleasant conversation with an atheist, and he was able to hear some of the things that motivate us and how we how we see the world. And um, yeah, I think ending on a ending, ending in a way where somebody can better understand your point of view, I think, is probably also a win. You said something about, you know, is it is it rational or reasonable to believe? And I guess one of the things that I'm wondering is, do you, do you think that it is even if a belief is unreasonable or unra- irrational? Do you think that there are times when, depending on where the where and how a person was raised, that it's quite rational for them to believe it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I can I can fully understand and empathize with people who believe things for poor reasons simply because they get a benefit from it. In their mind, it is rational to believe it because that's just how they've been viewing the world ever since they learned this or they had some sort of experience that confirmed that it's true. So, no, I, I completely understand where, where these folks are coming from. Uh, it's you, one of the reasons you know, why I, I think- I was just saying, I look at my dad who's this hyper evangelical Christian. And I don't think the beliefs he holds, you know, makes make much sense. But like he grew up in a, in a community where everybody believed in Jesus. Every, you know, his mother said to him, if you touch that stove, you'll burn your hand. And that was true. If you work hard, you, you'll do better in school. And that was true. And she told him a thousand things that were true. And she told him that Jesus Christ was his Lord and savior. She was a reliable, you know, she was a reliable source of knowledge for that guy. I understand why he accepted her at face value. And then he tries Christianity. He prays the prayers, he goes to the retreats, he does the mission trips. And the question is, does practicing, does praying every morning, does that practice lead to some really good outcomes? And it did mm-hmm. in his life practicing Christianity. Again, the belief itself doesn't have to be true for the practice of it to really have wonderful benefits. So he's in this situation where he's like, I try, I was told by a reliable source that Jesus was true. I tried Jesus and it worked. I've no, I've had no reason to question that since then. And you go like, well, that's, you know, that's the same reason I sit on wooden chairs. Like I was told that they would hold my weight. I sat on them, they held my weight. Like I trust wooden chairs. <laughs> and, and so even though the belief itself might not be able to hold up under scrutiny, the act of ex- adopting it and then feeling really confident, it makes total sense. Oh, sure. And there's a real value to having some of these beliefs. I can see the family that we helped because my church all got together and raised money and said prayers and helped this poor family out. Um, I, the feelings that I have that this God is real, it's, it's so real to me. 
um, it helps me get through a difficult time when I when I pray to a God and I think that that's that that entity is helping me. So these experiences that people are having are are ex- are extremely real and profound. What it really comes down to is we're not challenging the experience and the feelings right. that you're having from the belief. What we're interested in, especially when we're using an approach like street epistemology, is are you actually believing something that's true? We're not challenging the results that you might get from believing it uh, because it's entirely possible I can be believing something that's not true and get benefit from it. Are you are you the type of person that wants to believe true things regardless of the benefit that you may or may not be getting from it? That I think is probably the more fundamental question. And, th- and that's where I, that's where I got to ask you, like, do you think that it is, I don't know, like responsible to plant the seed that you know is going to undermine somebody's belief system if you can't replace the benefits for them like so you got you got this person and they're in this family and everybody believes and if they stop believing they're gonna they're gonna be perhaps disenfranchised from their family there are people that their their job their whole worldview like their their mother's dying of cancer and this is the only thing that's keeping them from sinking into depression and Mm. you know or 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 like they were a drug addict and they got in one of those programs and and the people at the church got them a job and got them a house and and like their whole life is wrapped up in this community and if that belief crumbles and they can't be part of that community anymore do you have a new community to offer them well, that's a great question. And this comes up a lot in the street epistemology Facebook groups that we have. What kind of responsibility do we have as practitioners of this method? What options do these people have besides the belief structures that they might already be enmeshed in? And when do we abstain from actually participating in a conversation? These are all difficult questions. And I think each practitioner would probably answer it differently. There have been times where I've ended conversations with people because it seems evident that they would be harmed if they didn't have this belief. Uh, whenever I'm in doubt, generally as a, as, a, as a guide, I'll ask them if it's important for them to believe true things. Would you prefer to believe true things over things that may not be true, but still give you comfort? And if they put a high valuation on truth, and it's clear that they wouldn't suffer terribly if they discovered that their cherished belief wasn't true, then I'll usually proceed with them. This is one of the reasons why I think it's important for atheists to and humanists and so forth to come out if you can and be involved in your community because there are people who are questioning whether they encounter somebody using SE or they observe a, an argument or something or a debate online or whatever. These are people who are looking for groups. They, they are looking for alternatives to the belief structures that they are currently surrounded by and so, alternatives to the com- to the believing community mm-hmm. that that they're a part of like the belief structure is one thing but there's also like i need another place to to, to go on sunday morning i i need a, i need another group to go to the movies with on saturday night i, I like yeah. i like i i you know the, honestly watching this watching the street epistemology people at this at this uh columbus thing I was like, oh, they look just like my old high school youth group or my my college my college fellowship group. Like they're running around together. They have inside jokes. They're, they're and, I, and I thought like <laughs> that's that has its own value. 
Well, let, I don't want to cede too much ground to these religious groups. Um, they don't have a lock on community or or in-group language or putting a bumper sticker on their car that might be promoting their cause. I mean, these are things that humans are going to do regardless of where they stand on the view of a God existing. Oh, um, I, 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 if, I wish you could be in my counseling practice all week long because I get, I get people calling me and they are really isolated. And they like, yeah. if you're a Presbyterian and you're isolated in, in Cleveland, like you can go to the phone directory and you can find five groups that are, that, that will be thrilled to have you. Like, that's not always the case if you're if you're a nice secular humanist. There's not always a place for you to go. There are some groups though. Uh, we have recovering from religion, which is awesome. They have support groups too, where you can if if you like the face to face stuff, you've got the support groups from recovering from religion. You have the uh, the Oasis groups, which are kind of spreading out across the United States. I think they're in England too. I've even started a group because um, I, I I've had enough conversations with people where I challenge their beliefs in a respectful way and they begin to doubt and even discard their belief that it, I've, I've, I've discovered you that we have a an responsibility. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I started a group. It's a Facebook group for people who, there are some people who don't really care about the face to face stuff, but they still want the community. If you, uh, we have a, it's a secret Facebook group where nobody even knows that you're, that you'd be in it uh, except other members. Um, it's a, it's called emerging faith. Um, send an email to emergingfaithhelp at gmail.com if you want us to vet you. But that was, that was a big discovery in, in using SE, like, holy cow, this seems to be really effective. These people are really starting to question. They're starting to doubt. Oh my gosh, they're giving up their belief. I have an obligation here. I just can't give them a card or not, or just shake their hand and say goodbye. Um, I need to be there for these people if they need it. So there is a certain degree of responsibility, I think, if you decide yeah. to start engaging with people using this method or possibly even another method that that might cause a person to discard their views. And 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 that's the I I I think that, you know, there's the recovery process. Like, you know, when people transition out of something, like there's this like we were talking about before, there's this angry phase and you're, you're, you're confused and, and, and you, you, you sort of don't know how you're going to organize your thinking and your worldview. Um, and then there comes this phase after that where you're like, okay, now what do I do? Like, and particularly like, I still want to pursue loving relationships. I still want to make the world a better place. Like all the things that brought me into Christianity, like, they, on the other side of Christianity, I still had those hungers and those desires. And so where do I, where do I do that? And I think that's why I was like, if you, if you make it clear that like we're engaging people at the beginning because we care about them, then I think it's much more natural to say, and because, you know, so because we care about them when they, if, if and when they sort of shed some erroneous beliefs, we got to be there for them on the other side too. I think it's critical. Uh -huh. Yeah. I think it's critical, especially when we're starting to recognize the the potency of this particular approach. I think it, it would it would be a pretty nasty thing to do to just tear somebody down and just leave them there flailing in the wind. Yeah, um, which is one of the reasons why a lot of the people who do this we we try to be accessible. We give them a card. What's funny is um, if I remember the conversation that I had with Dan, who you met, uh, I gave him a card. But I, I don't know if he kept it or, or discarded it or what. He never reached out to me until years after. And that's when he reached out and wanted to talk and, and share his, his experience with me. But 
I think it's really important that if you if you do encounter somebody who's challenging your worldview, that besides just going to the church that shares the same thing that you believe or your your Bible study group or something, try to seek out other communities who maybe have gone through the process. What do they find compelling that uh, that led them out? I, I would try to encourage people to just not don't just try to insulate yourself back into the belief that's been challenged, but seek out other communities that have found their way out. Yeah. So how many people are doing this at this point, do you think? That's a good question. We don't really know. Uh, there's a couple of metrics that I can probably throw out. We have 3,000 people following the Street Epistemology Twitter. There is closing in on 5,000 people in the main Street Epistemology Facebook group. We do have a list where the author who started all this has been asking for 10,000 people. I think we have 600 or so that have officially signed up on the list. If What's you were that to ask dude's me, name again? What's that dude's name again? Bogosian. Peter Bogosian. Are you buddies with him now? Uh, yeah, we're good friends. Okay. If you were to ask me how many people are practicing street epistemology, meaning that they occasionally use it when they hear somebody make a claim, mm-hmm. I would say it's probably 10,000 people. That would be my guess. Just based on the type of video views that we're getting, the number of subscribers we have on our channels, the the emails that I get from people all over the world. I think it's probably a pretty safe estimate that we're probably at 10,000. How many of those do you think use like the camera like you do and actually make, oh, a, make a record? Very, very few. Why do you think that is? Well, it's weird for one thing. Uh, there's a certain amount of uh, maybe courage, I guess it takes to to go out and initiate talks and then not on, to- on top of that, record it and then go through the effort of editing it and uploading it and trying to promote it maybe. Uh, you know, you might get a few cross-eyed looks from your loved ones if you if you announce that you were going to do this. So, but, but when you're doing, I, I would it, say we probably have a, between a dozen to twenty people who are currently doing it. When you're doing it, I get the feeling that you're doing it like you're tabling on a university campus. There's like you're set up there so that you have a clipboard in your hand so that somebody goes like, "Oh, he's a street canvasser," or, or "He's officially encountering me." You, you don't pretend it's like. You know, you're in the line at McDonald's and you and you, and you turn you do it. It's clear that you're out there to talk to people. I think so. Uh, people can usually size me up pretty quickly, like what I'm out there doing. They they usually tend to see a camera. They see the clipboard. I try to greet them with a smile, and if they stop, then I I try to very quickly explain what I'm doing if they haven't already asked me. And uh, I I of course want to get their permission to record them. I try to explain the type of questions that I'll be asking. And I encourage them to pick a topic. And usually by that point, they feel safe enough with me that, and, and also that I'm probably not going to hold them for too long. They're usually a little bit more curious than afraid at that point. And most people, at least in my area, tend to stop and talk with me. If if you really are honest about your beliefs and you start asking yourself these questions, I really don't see how a religious person or somebody who believes in something supernatural would hold on to that belief for very long if they honestly started asking themselves these same types of questions. You, you should meet some of the apologists that I know. <laughs> I run into a lot of them online. Don't worry. Oh my gosh. But like but there, when I was growing up in church, there was a guy named Josh McDowell whose famous book was called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Um, and it was all about like how Christianity would just like, if you just look at the evidence, you would believe it. And uh, he's still out there, but like his son, I knew growing up, because my dad was a famous evangelist too. And uh, 
And so Sean now teaches at Biola University, this big Christian college out in the Los Angeles area. And he's writing the apologetics books now. And I actually ended up up in Canada on a forum with him. Like he and I, you know, like the two people, you know, in, in front of a church of, you know, a thousand people. Um, and Matt Dillahunty shows up and he's in the audience, um, which was funny because I hadn't, I hadn't met Matt before that. And I was like, oh, he's, he's going to think I'm the worst. Cause I'm like Mr. Warm and fuzzy when I talk to Christians. Um, I'm, I'm just Mr. Warm and fuzzy anyway. Um, <laughs> but it was really interesting because, you know, these, these are people that are convinced that like they have evidence and that they have reasons and that their reasons will hold up to scrutiny. And you know, it's just remarkable to me because they don't. And it wasn't like I was attacking. I was just sort of going like, where, how, like, what about this? Mm, mm-hmm. But their confidence is incredibly strong because they're like, if it's true, it must be able to be, it must be supportable. And they're like, they start with it being true and then build the support backwards rather than starting with, is it supportable? If it's supportable, I'll believe it's true. They, they start with it being true. That tends to be my experience as well, that uh, most of these folks, especially the diehard apologists, uh, they're so tied to the belief being true. They've built careers on it being true. There would be a tremendous cost if they discovered that it wasn't true, that they then right. try to backfill and they'll take anything to support the belief at that point. Um, it is quite frustrating. I, I would much rather spend my time dealing with everyday lay believers than these diehard apologists who will just throw up reasons for their belief that they were never reasons why they believed. They're just difficult to defend or there's really no good answer other than I don't know. And they yeah. just glom onto that and, and think that that's just, that's just uh, the best way to defend their belief is to, to stymie, uh, stymie the non-believer. You're probably familiar with Upton Sinclair whose you know, famous line was, it's very difficult to convince a man to change his mind about something if his salary depends upon him not changing his mind. <laughs> Love it. And I think for, you know, what, what I always sort of think is like, yeah, what, what if it's not just your salary, but it's your marriage, it's your identity, it's your sense of purpose in the world. You know, like, you know, for me, the, I mean, you know, the remarkable, you know, when you say like some of these people that are disabused are like, how could I believe that? For me, the, the remarkable thing is not that I was a believer for you know 25 years or 30 years. The, the, the remarkable thing is that I made it out at all because by the time I started really wrestling on 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 on, on the hard edge of this stuff, I was so invested and you know I, I was a well known you know Christian leader. So it was incredibly you know the you know the cost was you know great in terms of that kind of. You know, I had a whole community. Mm-hmm. I'm genuinely enthusiastic about this because I feel like I feel like what you're teaching people is a way of establishing a durable connection, mm. which is really what I'm. You know, what what I think ultimately so many of our young people are dying for right now is they're like, I don't have many friends, I don't have many durable connections because like street epistemology isn't just good for you know, a, a, a stranger encounter. It's probably good in a marriage. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, was this conversation, typically what happens is, is the people that listen to this podcast, what they, I get to talk shop about, about goodness with really interesting people that I'm just lucky enough to, 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 to know or to, or to connect with. 
And sometimes I'm, I'm just like, hey, if you want to overhear the kind of like conversation that Anthony and I would have had if we were sitting in a, in a, in a, in a coffee shop, yeah, good on you. But this I was love that, that interview that style. I, I have those types of conversations with people like a Matt Dillahunty or Seth Andrews or um, Ryan Bell or something like that. Although I haven't met Ryan in person. But yeah, I've always thought just an off-the-cuff discussion like we were sitting down and just chatting would be so would just be probably more enjoyable i would think for the audience than the type of questions that you might hear during an interview yeah all right that was me and anthony magnabosco and i hope you enjoyed it i did i love that guy i don't agree with him on everything but Gosh, he just, he doesn't just challenge people on the street. He challenges people like me with all our warm and fuzziness uh, to break down. Okay, what's, what's, the, what's really going on here? Where do you get your ideas from? How, how, how does that work? Does it make any sense? I, I just, I think it's just so refreshing to talk to somebody who, who thinks, thinks like you do, but doesn't feel like you do, or who feels like you do, but doesn't think like you do. Um, yeah. So I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, and I, I think if you dug that conversation, come back for more next time because David Fleischer is going to challenge me and you in a different way, um, all around the same subject of how do we get better at talking to people who are different than us, at engaging them, at caring about them, at being curious about them and ultimately about engaging in conversations that even if they don't change everything about somebody's mind, they change the way, the, the, they change the relationship between the two sides, even if they don't change the two sides. All right, that's it. This was, this was a good podcast. I hope this was a good podcast for you. I'll see you next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at humanize me pod on Twitter and humanize me podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search humanize me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life.